Good morning. Let's get to Matthew 5. We are in Matthew 5, preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. We got through the Beatitudes and trust that uh, all those principles have been an encouragement to you. And Jesus continuing to speak to the multitudes here using parables. Uh, this week we're going to be covering uh, verses 17 through 20 as Jesus continues to use parables and illustrations to illustrate principles of the kingdom. I'm going to thank God for the word, and then I'm going to read 17 through 20, and we'll jump in. Father, this morning we thank you for this time together. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're working on all of us, and you're perfecting us and conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that the word goes forth this morning in the power and demonstration of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, open up these verses to us. Help us to see past what Jesus gave to the multitudes and as his disciples, see what treasures and principles and pearls of wisdom you've tucked in there for those who love you. So open that up to us today and send us home encouraged and stretched and challenged today so that we can apply these things to our life. I ask it in Jesus' name and the church said... Verse 17, chapter 5, Sermon on the Mountain, Jesus speaking. He said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Listen to verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus saying some pretty startling things to the multitudes there, and I can guarantee you this, it sent a spiritual shudder through the crowd as they listened to him speak these words. Now, as we've been going through these verses on the other side of the Beatitudes here, first Jesus used the illustration of salt to remind us of maintaining our spiritual edge. All of us have to maintain our spiritual edge. If you've ever gotten dull as a Christian, you know about it. And nobody likes to be around dull Christians. Just let that settle in for a second. So maintain your spiritual edge. Keep yourself sharp. You're the the flavor. You're the salt. You're the seasoning. You're the spice of this world. Then Jesus moves on and he talks about light, reminding us that the church and his children have to be light in the darkness. The purpose of the kingdom of God is to dispel darkness. Everywhere you and I go, we should shine the light of truth and love and righteousness in the dark. Listen, you say, well, I don't feel like I have much light. You got it. Just let it shine. Amen. So you're the light of the world. You're the light in the darkness. And the church is to be the transforming power of God in the earth. And now Jesus shifts gears here. He goes from salt to light to speaking about the law. And he's uh, asking us to consider the purpose and function of the law as New Testament believers. Now, when you hear the word law, what that encompasses is the Old Testament Mosaic law covenant and the Ten Commandments. When, When Jesus says the law, he's talking about the commandments of God, particularly in the framework of the Old Testament and the Mosaic system where they had these laws that they had to keep. And if you kept the law, God would count it unto you as righteousness. 
okay? So Jesus shifts gears, and he's talking about that, and he's really showing us how the law functions and what its purpose is in the framework of the New Testament. Now, verse 17 through 20 uh, are some powerful verses. Jesus makes it very clear that the Mosaic law covenant is not going anywhere. He says not any of it's going to pass away. And it's going to stay and it's going to remain in place. And you might say, well, you know, we're under a new and better covenant. Do you know that as Christians, we're not under the law anymore? Come on, I'll try this side. You know, as Christians, we're not under the law anymore. We are under grace. You don't sound excited about grace. Grace is much better than the law. The law says, do it right and I'll bless you. God, the, 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 and if you do it wrong, there's a judgment attached to that. Grace says, I know you can't do it. Just come to me. I've done it for you on the cross and just trust me and I'll take care of you. Now you got it. Grace is something to clap about, amen? So we're under grace, but Jesus is saying the law didn't go away. And and for the New Testament Christian, there's a balance to be struck here. We need to understand. You say, well, why allow it to remain in place? The law has a valid role to play in every man's interaction with God. We're going to talk about that today. Hebrews says that there's a new and better covenant. Hebrews 8, 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities. Thank you, Jesus. And I will remember their sins no more. It's getting better. And he said a new covenant. He has made, has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So there's a transition from the old to the new. And we're in that transition phase here as New Testament Christians. Hebrew 9, 15, uh, Paul says again, and he was for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. Who is? Jesus. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgression that was committed in the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal eternal inheritance. So Jesus has done it once for all, and we're the inheritance of that blessing. Come on, say amen. amen. Hebrews says a lot about the new covenant and the old covenant and the implications here. I encourage you to study uh, Hebrews, and if you want to know more about this and understand the depth of the theology here. But Jesus mentions this to the crowd, to the multitudes. And you might say, okay, Jesus, we're, the new covenant is about to place. You're going to die. You're going to rise again. You know it's coming. Yet he's talking about the old and the transition. So what What's he getting at here? There's four powerful points I want to give you from these verses here. And there there are points about the law that we need to understand. Number one, verse 17, he didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now listen to that. He says it himself. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Say abolish. Say fulfill. Big difference there. He didn't come to just drive it away. Okay, we're done with this. Throw it out. It's of no value anymore. No, throw the law out. Throw the Ten Commandments out. Throw the Old Testament out. Throw the prophets out. We're done with them. Yet many Christians approach the Old Testament like that, that it has no bearing. It has no impact. Jesus says, that's not what I came for. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. Now you say, well, how did Jesus fulfill the law? In fact, say that. How did Jesus I'm so glad you asked. Jesus fulfilled the law in this way. The law states that the wages of sin are what? Death. That when you sin, the the just punishment for sin is you die. The soul that sinneth shall surely die. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. 
We are born original sinners with sin in our spiritual DNA. And the first chance we get when we're old enough, we confirm our nature by sinning ourselves. Some of us earlier and more frequently than others, but all of us do. In fact, you know, sin is not something that you have to be taught to do. I mean, you see it even in little children. I mean, there are some little children, black belt level sinners. And just, you know, hands in the cookie jar, cookies all over their face. I didn't take it. You're two feet. You're lying to me. So sin is in us, and its, it's wages are death, and the soul that sinneth shall surely die, and that's justice in God's sight. God says, you sin, you die. The old covenant was, you break the law, there's a judgment attached to that. So how did Jesus fulfill the law? Well, the law says, if you sin, you die. Now understand this, Jesus came in the flesh. He was born of the Holy Spirit. When the virgin conceived, he put on the flesh. What does that mean? Theologically, he was fully God and fully man. So he walks around in this earth suit. And you know, in the flesh, we have all kinds of desires and temptations and weaknesses and affinities towards things that are displeasing to God. So Jesus put that on and he walked in it for 33 years and never crossed the line, never broke the law, never sinned, not once, not ever, no how. So what did he do with that? Here's the only sinless man to walk in the flesh on the earth and lead a righteous life. He said, well, you know what? I'll die in your place on a sinner's cross, being a righteous man, the only righteous man. Listen, only Jesus could do what he did for us. If you nailed me to the cross, I'd just be a, another dead sinner. I can't save you. You being nailed to the cross can't save you. Us getting nailed to the cross is due punishment. Well, you're a sinner. This is the wages of sin, it's death, it's justice. Yet here comes Jesus, living righteous in the flesh, overcoming the dominion of sin, breaking its power, and then taking our place on the cross. He, he satisfies the law by dying a sinner's death as the only righteous man. Theologically, his death is called a vicarious substitutionary sacrifice. He didn't die for him, he died for us. It's vicarious in that he died in our place. So dying in our place, he becoming Messiah, he breaking the power of sin over us satisfies the law. God looks down and he sees us and he says, oh, you're in Christ? Well, you're not a sinner anymore because you're covered by the blood of Jesus. Now I don't see your sin. I see righteousness in Jesus Christ over your life. He satisfied the law so that we could have fellowship with the Father. How did Jesus fulfill the prophets? He said that I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill what the law, we just talked about how he did that. And the prophets, he said, listen to me, he fulfilled the prophecy in the Old Testament. Every messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, he fulfilled every single prediction that the prophets made about the Messiah. Every single one of them was fulfilled in him perfectly. If you look at the Old Testament messianic prophecies that talk about who, where he'd be born and whose line he would come from and how he would die and that he would be betrayed, and there's so many of them, we're going to touch on just a few in a minute, but the, the mathematical probability of any one man satisfying all of those things is astronomically impossible. 
And people say, well, I'm all about science. Okay, let's talk about statistics. Let's talk about probability. Let's talk about Isaiah, thousands of years before Jesus walked the face of the earth, telling us exactly what he would do, where he would come from, how he would die, where he'd be born, that he'd take nails to his hand. Come on, tell me that that's an accident. Tell me that a team of scholars with computers could synchronize that all together in a book and make a big fallacy to fool all of us. That's not science, that's stupidity. That's not science, that's denial. The probability that Jesus could fulfill all of these Old Testament prophecies that were written thousands of years before he walked the earth is impossible. I have a, a list here, it's not an exhaustive list, it's just some of them, the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament and then fulfilled by Christ in the New. I've made copies if you want some, after service, come and get them, but they're prophecies like this. In Isaiah 7, said he would be born of a virgin. In Matthew 1.23, he fulfills that. It says in Isaiah 9, he'd be from the house of David. Matthew 1, 1, he fulfills that. It talks about his birthplace in, in Micah. In Matthew 2, he fulfills that. Hosea says he would, he would run into Egypt. You know Joseph and Mary ran into Egypt. Why? And, and it's fulfilled here again in Matthew over and over again. His purification in the temple, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that he would be betrayed by a friend. It's talked about in Psalm, 1, Psalm 41. It's fulfilled in Matthew 26. He'd have pierced hands. He'd be offered gall and vinegar on the cross. No bones would be broken in his body, Ezekiel said. In John 19, that was fulfilled. He would be resurrected on the third day. Come on, over and over again, what the Old Testament says is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's not an anomaly. It's not an accident. He's exactly who he said he was. He fulfilled the law by satisfying the demands of sin. He fulfilled the prophets by being everything the prophets said he would be. Jesus didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. The second thing we need to know about the laws, New Testament Christians, is this. The Ten Commandments, the, the law, and the, and the spirit of the law will remain in place until heaven and earth passes away. Now that's important. Uh, you know, you might say, well, we're past it now. We're in the grace covenant, so it's of no value to us anymore. The Bible doesn't say that, and Jesus didn't teach that. He said this in verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So realize the law is in the earth accomplishing something. It's effectuating something in the hearts of men. We're gonna talk about that. But it's not gonna pass away. What he's saying is here is not, you know, one jot or tittle, the King James says. That not one stroke of punctuation will be removed from the law until heaven and earth pass away. What's he talking about? The end of the age. We are in the church age right now. This is the age where God testifies through his church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to a world that needs to accept the Savior, that Jesus Christ is Lord. When this age ends, we'll come into the, the age of the, you know, the end time age of when the Antichrist takes place. There'll be a shift there. There'll be a shift. But until heaven and earth pass away through all of those ages, not one part of the law will be void. That's a powerful statement, especially in light of the New Testament grace covenant. And so you might look at that and go, why in the world would you do that? What, why keep the law? It, we don't need it anymore. But its effect has implications on the interaction between 
man and God. Now, there are two ways that the law affects every man that draws breath, and here are the two ways. To the lost, it convicts the sinner of sin. What's the effect of the law on us when we were lost, when we didn't know Jesus? It, it gave us the knowledge of sin. And there again, no one had to teach us what sin was. We knew even when we were little when we were sinning. That's why, did you ever see kids? They know they're doing the wrong stuff. You see them, they get all sneaky. You know, they creep in. Going through mom's closet, going through the cookie jar. My mom used to hide uh, boxes of cupcakes, and, and she didn't hide, God bless her, didn't hide very well because we would find them. We would eat the whole box of devil dogs and just leave the wrappers. And then payday would come and we'd hear a scream from the bedroom Hey! We knew we were dead. But we knew we were doing wrong. That's why we sneak. That's why we hide. That's why we, we have a, an, you say, how do we know? There's an inner witness of our conscience. God has written his laws upon the hearts of men, even men that don't know him. It's our conscience. That's why people in the world who want to say, well, you know, the Bible is irrelevant and it's just a book made up by men and the things it says not to do, you could do whatever you want to do and we're, we're bigger than that, we're smarter than that, we're more advanced than that now. How come every time you break one of the laws, you feel conviction in your heart? Not because of religion, not because of uptight, narrow-minded Christians like me. It's because God has written the laws in our heart. That's why people who break these laws will spend so much time trying to convince everybody else that it's okay, and they're not even fooling themselves. When they lay down at night, they know in their heart they've broken God's laws and that there's conviction there. So to the sinner, the law, the commandments, the old covenant of the law convicts the sinner of sin. Now you say, well, what's the purpose of that? See, the beauty of this is that it convicts him of sin and then places him under the wrath of God. Romans 1.17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So when I sin, I feel conviction, and then the wrath of God rests upon me, and you say, well, why in the world does God do that? He just wants to make me feel bad. No, he wants the conviction to lead to godly sorrow so that I'll repent and I can be saved. You see, even in God's wrath, he's trying to effectuate salvation. God's not just pounding on, man, Rick, you're, you're so low, and you break all my rules, and I just want to pound on you because I, I'm really mad at you. No, he's like, son, I love you. And I've told you these things, not because I want to restrain you or steal your joy or, or, or make sure you don't have any fun, because these things will kill you spiritually. So son, please receive the conviction and receive the correction and repent, and I'll save you if you repent before me. Do you, do you see how it works? That's good news. But to, but to the hard heart, it says, no, I won't repent. I won't believe the word. I won't receive the conviction. I want to do it my way. That heart hardens. And then the wrath gets hotter. You say, why? Because he loves you, and he's not willing that any should perish. So to the sinner, the law convicts of sin. How about to the righteous? We're, you know, we're not under the law anymore. No, and we're not under the law as sinners anymore. But as the righteous, if we're saved, what does the law function to do? The law reminds us of, of the fact that we have a weakness towards sin, and it reminds us to stay close to God so that we don't get sucked back into sin. 
You see, the commandments, to the Christian who, who reads the commandments, it says, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder. These things are restrainers to us. They should affect our behavior. That We don't speak lies. We don't steal from one another. We don't step out on our spouse and commit adultery. Hello? And when we do, there again, we step out from under grace right into the law and we receive conviction. Why? So we'll repent and get right with God. So we don't throw the Ten Commandments away as we see some people do. They say, oh, you know, we're under grace now and we're going to talk about this. I don't want to get too far ahead, but people throw the baby out with the bathwater and they say, well, now there's no rules. I can just do whatever I want and wound up snared worse than when they were lost. Wow. So the law has an effect on the heart of every man that draws breath to the lost that convicts of sin and leads to repentance to the saved. It reminds us that we have an affinity and a weakness towards sin and that we need to stay close to the Savior. Uh, verse 7 gives us, uh, in Romans 7, uh, gives us the, the fact that there is a knowledge of sin. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. And the knowledge of sin, look what it says here in Romans 7, verse 6. Just listen to this. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which by where we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Now, what Paul is saying there is that we are Christians who are saved by grace, and that's a free gift. We're not legalistic anymore. Hello? But we are under grace. So we don't become legalistic in the sense where, oh, I'm a rule keeper. I just got to keep the rules. If I keep the rules, God has to, but, and, and you know, it's just about rules. No, that's Old Testament law covenant. So we need to make a shift. Nobody can do it. All the, all the law does is serve to show us, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. I'm a sinner, I need a savior. Every time. Have you ever tried to keep the commandments? Try tomorrow. Start early. So you'll fail early. And you'll have the day to thank God for grace. Man, I remember as a young person trying to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be good today. And usually those were the worst days. Right? Or if you thought you were doing good, you know, oh, I've been good for like an hour, and then pride centers in, and then you just, you blew it. You're, now you're proud. So the, the law has a function here. It has a different function, function on the believer than it does on the lost, but it still has a valid function. That's why Jesus didn't abolish it. That's why he fulfilled it. That's why we can't throw it away, but we need to respect it. You say, why? Because the minute we as believers become independent of God, we're in trouble. You know, when you're first saved and you're having your relationship with Jesus and you realize the, the sweetness of being forgiven of sin and you, you realize that God is scrubbing you clean from all the sin of the past, and what a beautiful honeymoon period that is. Can we say amen? But you know, the longer we walk with him and the more we sit in church and the more we absorb knowledge and theology, very often many of us get too big for our britches again. And we think we don't need God. And we don't need anybody to tell us what to do. And we know better than everybody now. I've seen this. This is not my first rodeo. I've been around the block. I've known people who were saved for decades who decided, well, I don't need to read the Bible anymore. I know it all. Dead serious. Guy told me that. Wasn't too long after that, he fell into adultery, shipwrecked his faith. I know people say, well, I don't need to pray anymore. You know, my whole life is a prayer. Okay, oh, okay, Sammy Spiritual. That's a, that's a real good one. All of us need to pray. Jesus prayed. 
So if we get too big for our britches, if we get to the point where we become independent of God, we're in real serious trouble. A poll is cited in Chuck Colson's book, Against the Night. This poll sheds light on the paradox that we see in our culture. There is an increase of religiosity in our culture, while at the same time, our morality is plummeting. What does that mean? More people are saying, I'm a Christian. They identify as a Christian, yet they don't live biblical values. And that's something that's been going on in our culture for a few decades now. Now, according to sociologist Robert Bella, 81%, did you hear that? 81% of Americans claim to be Christians. (laughs) 81% of Americans say, you know, they're Christians. And that same percentage says that an individual should arrive at his or her own religious beliefs independent of any church or preacher or synagogue. So a high percentage of people who say they're Christians say, you should arrive at your faith without the help of the experts who have a handle on the faith. So the result of this trend is that many claiming to be Christians are arriving at faith at their own terms, and these terms put no demands on them morally. A a woman named Sheila in Bella's study embodied the attitude. She said, I believe in God, but I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism. I just listened to my own little voice. Well, I'm sorry, but there's no... Sheilaism, or Rickism, or Eliasism, or Tonyism, there's only biblical Christianity. There's only the Holy Spirit. There's only the Word of God. There's only truth in Jesus Christ. My way doesn't lead to God. My way leads in circles, makes messes and drama. My way leads to spiritual bankruptcy. Yet we have so many in our culture that believe, just do what you want, live how you want, it's all good, it's all okay, and that independence from God has led a generation astray. He didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. The law will remain in place. We don't graduate from it. We don't become independent of God. Verse 19, he continues here. Verse 19 serves as a warning to every believer. It says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let's just look at verse 19. It is a warning to every believer. This verse, this verse, when you read it, it will provoke the wise saint to consider how we're honoring God's commands. If God's saying there's a reward, there's a blessing attached to it, or there's discipline attached to how we deal with this, we would be wise to take a look at how do I, how do I deal with the commands of God? Have I tossed them aside? Have I kept them uh, away from my heart and my mind? Do they guide me? Do they keep me safe and close to Jesus? Or am I just living recklessly? Uh, the, the, the idea that we could toss away the law and do something that Jesus himself said he's not gonna do, he's not gonna abolish but fulfill, is a reckless way to live. Now, understand something. As we consider how we keep the commands of God and the commands of Jesus, our lifestyle directly affects others when they see how we live. If you're a Christian, if you're in church, if you're a mature saint, your lifestyle affects those around you. The way I live the gospel, not preach the gospel, the way I live the gospel affects my sons. They see me at home with, with not nice clothes on, 
and with my hair messed up in the morning and me yelling at them to clean their room and other things. And we've got to be real inside and outside of church and have integrity in what we do because what we do or what we don't do affects those around us. Boy, it is quiet now. No, Pastor Rick, I can just tell them what to do and they'll listen. They ain't listening to you because they're watching you. Your lips are moving, but they're watching what you do. And so if you're doing the wrong stuff, guess what they're going to copy? I love it. You can have 10 good qualities and one bad one. And guess which ones your kids pick up instantly? I'm just going to move on. This is a warning to us. It says here, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments. Now, let's look at that word annul. We probably know it from the marital term, an annulment. What that word means is to void, to invalidate, to abolish, or cancel. So when Jesus says, whoever knows, whoever makes it void, whoever invalidates, whoever abolishes or cancels, one of the least of these commandments shall be least in the kingdom of heaven. And, and it says what? And teaches others to do the same. Did you see that? If we say, oh, you don't have to follow this, and you don't have to follow that, and you don't have to go to church on Sunday, and you don't have to give, and you don't have to serve, and you don't have to do anything, just, you know, it's all about grace. If we teach others to do that, and they do it, and it destroys their soul, we're going to be accountable for it. Oh, aren't you glad you're in church on Sunday morning? Don't get mad at me. I'm just preaching it in the order that Jesus put it here. I couldn't skip it. Because we need to consider it. It's a warning to us. And you might have heard people say things like this. Uh, if you've been around the block any amount of time, if you've dealt with people who, who say they're Christians, but their life doesn't line up with the word of God, you've heard them say things like this. Come on, bro. There are no rules or regulations over us. We don't have boundaries. We don't need to be disciplined. This is the New Testament. It's grace. And you know, we don't have to stay faithful to our spouse or be loyal or respect leadership or go to church or submit to authority. We don't have to have moral restraint. We can lie if it's convenient. God will forgive us. We can steal from our neighbors or our employers. It, it, you know, it's not a big deal. Everybody's doing it. You know, we can fornicate or commit immorality or sexual immorality. God understands it's all about love and grace, man. Stop being so legalistic, will you? Well, I've heard that before. People in adultery or sexual immorality called out on it and go, you're being legalistic. No, I'm being biblical. And you need to look up the definite legalist. The nef, the nef, yeah, I can't even say it. I'm so hot. <laughs> it's not legalism to say we need to live the word of God. It's not legalism to say we need to honor the commands of God. It's recklessness to think we can do whatever we want. And, and, and God in heaven is just up there going, oh, it's okay, it's all grace. Did you know it was grace? It's grace. I guess it's grace. <laughs> yeah, called a meeting with the Trinity, said, is it all about grace? Am I all about love? Or, you know, is there justice and judgment and holiness and righteousness? We're supposed to be disciples. That means we're supposed to be disciplined. Oh, don't you love Discipline especially around the holiday times when it comes to food. <laughs> it's almost cruel preaching a message on discipline. Stop making cookies for me, please. I can't, I can't not eat them. I get up, I want cookies for breakfast. Ooh, there's cheesecake. That's breakfast food, right? Has eggs and milk in it, it's good. 
Discipline is hard, I get it. But there again, I'm just preaching what's here in the text and we've gotta see this, it's a warning. We, we can't be reckless and we can't, you know, just kind of toss the baby out with the bathwater, you know? And there's something else here in this participation trophy generation that is gonna be a little bit shocking to us. There is both reward and rank in heaven. Oh, I don't like to think about that. Well, here, check out this verse here. It says what? That whoever annuls one of the least of these things shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So there's reward and there's rank. If we do what God's commanded us to do and we keep them, we're rewarded. And there's gonna be rank in heaven. There's the least and there's the great. Now you might be listening to this and go, I don't care if I'm the least or the great. I just wanna make it there. Any, anyone ever feel like that? And I don't care if I'm in charge of plunging the toilets in heaven. I just want to go to heaven. I, I'm 99% serious. I just want to go. Jesus, hand me a golden plunger. I'll be like, yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but we're all going to stand before Jesus and give an account. And see, the thing is, the Bible, we're not going to be at the white throne judgment. That's for sinners who reject Christ. But we're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ. And he's going to take all our works, and they're going to be tried by fire. And if, and if we do good with what we've been given, there's going to come a crown out. And you say, well, I don't need no crown. I don't like crowns. I don't like hats. I don't want a crown. But see, the thing is this. The crown is what we get to offer at the feet of Jesus. I want something to offer Jesus. I want something to give him as thanks for what he's done for me. I don't want to just recklessly come in and go, here I am, just made it, woo! That's, that's not the way we want to live. And this warning will keep us from that. That we honor the word of God, that we restrain ourselves, that we keep ourselves morally pure. Why? Because it saves us? No, it's not about that. Salvation's a free gift. That's the difference for the Old Testament. The, the, the law was salvation. Keep the law and you'll be, you'll be saved. But for us, it's grace. So we do these things not to earn salvation, but we do them to honor Jesus and his sacrifice for us. Verse 20 closes down Jesus' comments on the law here. And I want to read you verse 20. It's a wake-up call to the religious multitudes. We just got a strong warning as believers. Now, this is really a wake-up call to the religious multitudes. And no, notice, there are multitudes of people who are religious and lost. In our generation, I'm talking about. And some of us were some of them. We were religious. We knew about God. We knew about Jesus, but we didn't have a relationship with him. We were religious and we were lost. What a sad place to be. Why? Because there's spiritual deception there that thinks, I'm all right, I'm okay, I'm good. I'm part of that 81% that says, I'm a Christian, yet I approach God my own way and not the way he said to. So this is a warning to the religious multitudes, and it's a wake-up call. And Jesus says this, and believe me, this statement he made put a hush on the crowd. He said, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus dropped the mic and the crowd didn't make a peep. You say, why is that such a powerful statement? Because the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these religious zealots who were so legalistic had pushed the envelope on doing good works and keeping the law. You know, there was 10 commandments and they had volumes of books on how to fulfill them. 
the rabbinical things and they wrote and all this stuff. I mean, how to fulfill them and, and all these things. And it became so legalistic and so meticulous. And Jesus says, oh yeah, you know, the, those guys that pushed the level all the way to that point of legalism out, out of bounds. He says, unless yours is better than theirs, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like saying, yeah, you know what? Unless you can hit a baseball 900 feet, you can't play in the major leagues. I mean, performance-enhancing drugs have not even got us halfway there yet. Basically, everyone in the crowd who heard that was thinking, you know what? If I've got to earn my salvation, I don't have a hope of being saved. And that's why it hushed the crowd. Matthew 19:24. Jesus' disciples felt this same sting when they contemplated this. Jesus said, again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with people, this is impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. See, and this is, they didn't get it, but Jesus was saying, under the old system, yeah, it's impossible. But I'm about to die, and I'm about to bust this thing wide open. I'm about to break the back of sin so that you can come in by grace. And with you, it's impossible. But with God, it's going to be possible. But they felt the sting of that. They're like, man, who can be saved? You know, when Jesus said a camel through the eye of a needle, he wasn't talking about, you know, a camel through a, a sewing needle. In every city, they had a gate that was called the, the needle gate where you would have to go through and it was very tight. When you came in, you just had to come in yourself. So they would have to strip their camels down so all of their stuff could be inventoried and looked at. It was kind of a security gate. And the camels would actually get down on their knees and do like a little shuffle to get through that tight gate. Jesus is saying it's really tight. A camel through the eye of a needle. A rich man can't be saved. And they're going, oh my goodness, who can be saved? I can't be saved. Jesus saying, no, you, you can't be saved yourself, but with God, it's going to be possible very soon. So here's this idea of being saved by works, and it is clashing with what is happening in the kingdom of God. Now, I want to say something here as I'm closing this down. Every religious system on earth, uh, the doctrine of salvation in every religious system on earth falls into one of two categories. Number one, salvation is earned yourself and you have to do good works to earn it. Number two, salvation is a free gift of God's grace, and you receive it by faith. If you study every world religion, I studied cults and world religion in Bible college, listen to me, every one will fall. Even if they invent new ones, they're gonna fall into one of these two categories. It's either you earn your salvation yourself, or it's a free gift. Now you say, well, how does the breakdown work? How many are in each category? On team free gift of grace, there's one, there's one. It's Christianity. And every other system is works-based. You study every other system, doesn't matter if it's a cult, if it's a world religion, if it's Hinduism, Muslim, Islam, uh, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, you have got to earn it by works. Only biblical Christianity says it's a free gift of grace. Wow. So to everyone who's trying to earn salvation, Jesus is saying, you're never going to be able to earn it. So you're going to have to think what's plan B, the free gift of God's grace. Newsflash, salvation can never be earned by works. We're born sinners. We already start off. When I was born in my mother's womb, my spiritual DNA passed down from Adam and Eve, made me a sinner. As soon as I was old enough, I confirmed my sin nature by sinning myself. <laughs> 
Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all as an unclean thing. All our righteousness is like filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. On the flip side of the coin, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and not, not of yourselves. It is the free gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Pick a team. Do you want to be on the grace team? Then receive God's grace through Jesus Christ and enjoy fellowship with the Father as a free gift by what Jesus did on the cross. Do you want to go by works? Well, it's the losing team. You'll never win, but you can try and earn it all the days of your life and it will only produce spiritual frustration and discontentment and it will eventually shipwreck your soul. As for me and my house, I choose grace. Salvation is a free gift. This is a wake-up call to religious people who hope God grades on a curve, who hopes that they just gotta be better than 51% of the other people. We're either a sinner or a saint. We're either in Christ or we're lost. It's very simple this morning. It's a wake-up call to our generation that wants to approach God their own way. That little voice in, in our head <laughs> will lead us off the spiritual cliff every time. It's only the Holy Spirit that leads us to the Father. Let's bow our heads today. As our heads are bowed and we're just thinking about everything the Holy Spirit showed us, I want to encourage you today, if you're here and you've been trying to approach God by your own strength, if you've been trying to do works to please God, if you, you realize, you know, I'm a sinner and I, I've tried to do better, but I, I can't. I pray today that you would stop the struggle and you'd accept the free gift of salvation by faith. That you would see that Jesus died on the cross to break the power of sin over the lives of people just like us. And that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. The Bible says in Romans that we, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, we would be saved. It's very simple. We admit we're sinners. We repent of our sin and we ask Jesus to be our savior. Free gift. We don't have to earn it. He did all the heavy lifting on the cross. His sacrifice was more than enough. But our works will never be. If you're here this morning and you want Jesus to be the Lord of your life, if you want a clean slate and a fresh start, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and have the power to live a different way from this moment forward, and you want to accept Christ, I just want you to slip up your hand. How many people would say here, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I want a clean slate and a fresh start. Don't be shy. Most important part of our service, if you need that here today, praise God. I'm believing all of us have made that commitment. And for each of us, Lord, that know you and have made that commitment to you and are resting in your hands, Father, help us to cease from striving, from doing works. Help us to walk away from legalism, not to throw away the commandments and act as if they have no effect over us, but to honor your commandments by living holy and righteous lives by teaching others to honor you and to serve you with their whole hearts. Father, let our words and our deeds push people towards the light, not into the darkness. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give him praise this morning.